Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. the designer maker revolution adrian here i hope everyone who's listening is well and all your families are well we're living in a pretty amazing time at the moment you know i'm aware of the many many micro and small businesses that are hurting with the interventions from the virus all the musicians that have lost their gigs all the artists that have lost their exhibitions good luck you guys and girls Stay safe. Today my guest on The Revolution is Simon Brown. His grandfather was T.H. Brown, who, if you're in Australia, you probably know as a furniture manufacturer, started in 1911, and it's still going. Simon has a lot of really interesting anecdotes and stories. In this conversation, I really want us to drill down into why it is that designers can have a really good go at it at various times over the last century and why sometimes it's not so easy. And we kind of get there. We, it's a hard question to answer, really, but it's an interesting question. And I think it's pertinent to our times now when a lot of people out there are really trying to have a go as a designer and build their businesses. So for that reason alone, it should be interesting, but Simon's got heaps of anecdotes. Really interesting guy, such an awesome raconteur, and I hope you enjoy my big discussion about the TH Brown Furniture Company and Simon Brown himself. Furniture design and manufacturing in Australia has had its ups and downs, yet the furniture manufacturer TH Brown has ridden that roller coaster for over 100 years. This podcast is a bit of a historical survey of design and manufacturing in Australia, focusing on the company TH Brown. Helping me navigate this story is the grandson of TH Brown's founder, Simon Brown. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. If you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer? Proudly, I'm a furniture manufacturer. Bloody good. And third generation. Yep. Yep. In our 110th year as a brand. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It certainly is. Have you ever felt that you're a revolutionary? Me? No. Not in any way, shape or form. You're not alone. (laughs) Now, my hope with this podcast is that we can get a sense of why designers and manufacturers have waxed and waned over the last 100 years in Australia. We're going to be talking particularly about Adelaide, but I think TH Brown was big enough that we can talk about Australia as well, because they've always been talented people, passionate about design and making in Australia over that time, and they've always been having a go, but there were periods where that having a go was a lot more successful than others. Yeah. And I want to get down into why, what were the ingredients of those periods? What made it happen? Great question. From my understanding, and bearing in mind that I wasn't there for the early days of T.H. Brown, the ingredients, to my mind, were very clear. 
Australia was a new colony. It had just gone through its own creation, its own federation. People were largely living rurally or on the farm or producing and um, making things from not a lot of raw material. So Grandpa, for example, he was born in 1890. By the time he was 12, he was the basically the single father of 11 siblings. The, old, the oldest child of a farmer up near uh, Snowtown, Port Pirie, and uh, he had no option but to provide for his family and siblings and his mother who was still alive so his father died at about 42 or thereabouts had 13 or 14 children many of whom died of typhoid and cholera uh, including my great-grandfather so uh, grandpa had no option he was too young for world war one he had a mother and siblings to provide for he initially started carting timber from the um, Flinders Ranges and around there for the rail spur that mm -hmm. was being built to connect Adelaide to the internet, interstate rail from WA. And he ran a bullocky wagon taking timber down to the ports and to the, the plants in Port Pirie to build the railway. So that's how he got into timber. During that stage, he also became very friendly with many of the local Indigenous um, parties in the area mm. and developed a great love of their culture and yeah, right. they, them as people. So to get back to your question, before World War I began, they were tough times. You'd had the recession in the late 1890s, which was about as bad as the GFC was here. So he had no option but to go out and do whatever he could. He was good with his hands, very practical. So he um, did a furniture apprenticeship in Port Pirie, left there, and with his brother Jim, his younger brother Jim, he started Brown Brothers Furniture in Adelaide in 1911 and they went to market in 1912 with their first products and they began as chair makers. They invested quite a bit of money in the time in a piece of equipment to make chair manufacturing easier than their competitors. So they had a competitive advantage in terms of volume and cost, and it really all went from there. They Where did you get the money from to invest he in He saved that? it. Yeah, right. He saved it. Was, I've got the notes there. It was about £2.10 shillings and he spent about 95% of that on one particular spindle machine, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is still around somewhere. Oh, God. He, um, it was his pride of place for all yeah. of his life, and it used to be in the factory when was I was it, a kid. I mean, in 1910, there would have been electricity, but not a lot of automation, so somebody would have been using that machine with hands and jigs. I, I think so. Or yeah. maybe um, could have been steam for all I know, but I, I've got this feeling. Yeah, it was, okay, could have been. Yeah, because most furniture factories, you know, had steam rooms and kilns and mm. things like that, the large ones anyway. So I, I don't know, actually. It's all a the really good point. Machines run off police. Yeah, yeah. It would have been very Dickensian to see it in operation. God, I imagine the yeah. fingers. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was, if you like, an industry by necessity. Getting anything out from the UK, which is where the predominant 
um, supply source came from for Australia was a very expensive and time-consuming process. So anything that could be made locally out of local materials became more and more important as the time went by. And then, of course, World War I made that an absolute mandatory. They didn't have supply to share with Australia, so we were on our own. And um, local craftsmen started to do a lot of work, you know, with local timbers, maple and blackwood and some of the more common Australian timbers and went down that path. Mm. Your grandfather's name was Thomas Howard Brown. Yeah. And that's the TH Brown that we're familiar Correct. with today. And by my uh, reckoning, he was 22 when he started his business. Yeah. Was he looking locally in South Australia? Was he looking nationally or...? Look, initially it was um, locally. His first customers were the railways uh-huh. or South Australian Rail where he made a lot of the timber detailing around the various um, railway stations. Yeah, yeah. If you could imagine the veranda... In those days, there's a lot of timber fret work. That was his first contract. From there, he then got contracts with the railways to start building bench seating and then staff seating. Then he started doing a lot of work for the South Australian Education Department doing student seating. And I doubt whether there's many bums in South Australia over the age of... 50 that didn't sit on a TH Brown teacher's chair Mm. at some point in their youth. They were Mm. ubiquitous. So he started to produce large numbers of those. And then the word spread, you know, they're a good utility chair that could be utilised in train stations and public service and education around, around the country. And it slowly began to extend. But really, as I understand it, not too much until post World War II when my father and my uncle Napier came back from the war and joined the company. So by that point, around 1940, they'd made the two millionth chair. So T.H. Brown was initially a chair maker Mm. and they made lots of chairs and they were the largest chair maker in the Southern Hemisphere. So that that had a momentum of its own. And mm. then post-World War II, they started to go into a broader range of how do we now furniture a home? Mm. And that that's another, another Yeah, so story. They've, they've had a commercial government business from the go-get, pretty much. Pretty much, as I understand it. And in those days, it was known as Brown Brothers because yeah. Jim Brown, his yeah. um, grandpa's younger brother, joined him. And they, through the late 1900, you know, 1911 through to 1922, really grew very, very quickly. Like yeah. they, they were very successful. They were, in those days, manufacturing and selling directly to the public or to end customers. And it wasn't until about 1929-1930 during the Depression that uh, Grandpa and his brother had a falling out. Um, myth has it that my great-uncle Jim was thrown through the screen door of um, Grandpa's house in Young Street in Wayville after a, an argument over an unpaid bill that somebody had allowed to get unpaid, yeah. as in somebody owed the company money and they never recovered it and Grandpa wasn't fairly uh, happy about that. So they had a falling out and Leonard went then and formed a retail outlet called Brown's Furniture in Hindley Street. He in turn had, and 
being a good Catholic family, we all came from very big broods. Mm. Mm. Um, you had all of these brown, f- various names of brown furniture retailers, Port Adelaide, Anzac Highway, South Road, mm. Hindley Street, and they were a very dominant retail family. And that was basically their settlement. Like, you go off and sell the stuff, Jim, I'll keep making it. I won't compete with you. Don't you compete with me. And, um, you know, probably I never want to speak to you again. Did they? <laughs> not really. So no. never reconciled? Not not as far as I'm aware, no. Yeah, that's kind of no. sad, isn't it? Look, Grandpa was a fairly volatile character. Was he? Yeah. Look, he, you know, he'd, he'd been through some track losing your father at the age of 10 or 12 he also um, when he was doing his bully cart run one of his young brothers got killed by the by the um, cart ran out of control down a creek bed you know up in the mid lower north um, region you know he he had to look after his mother and not only that he he buried five or six of his siblings Mm. so he was he was tough stock and he was very good sportsman yeah. Yeah, it was a fairly irascible character that was pretty self-determined. Did you get on with him? Look, I loved him, but I only met him, that I recall, probably half a dozen times. Yeah, OK. I, I was eight, I think, when he died um, in 1964. My older brothers obviously had more to do with him. Um, mm. and you know, But he was a very busy man, you know. He, he, was, a, he was typical of a... Of a industrialist of his era you know he played hard you know the wife was home looking after things on that front and I don't Mm. know that he would have been a very good husband by today's standards so we didn't have a lot to do with him he lived in Wavell and we lived in Somerton Park you know in those days he didn't get down to see us very often we'd see dad would see him at the golf course down at Kionga golf course fairly regularly he was a mad golfer Mm. um, and uh, a very talented bowler so he was um, a member of the uh, so he was captain of various bowling clubs and state mm. teams. Was he a good businessman? Do you think? Oh, I think no doubt. I think he was a ruthless, focused, tough survivalist. I would mm. be my call. He had an absolute mania about quality. So he really, really? oh yeah, that was his claim to fame was that anything he touches is going to be better than anyone else can make. So TH Brown was really more a manufacturing company than a design company. Mm, yeah, clearly. Going back to your earlier point. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, in every object there is a notion of design. I think when you design something, you've always got a compromise. You've got materials that you're using, you've got methodologies, manufacturing practices that you're using, you've got style, what it looks like, the aesthetic, yep. and all of those come into conflict. Conflict might not be a good word for some people, but yep. you've got to make a decision when you're building something about where the emphasis is. It seems to me that the furniture that your grandfather would have been building would have been very utilitarian and yep. super tough and probably didn't have a designer with a capital D inverted commas associated with it. It was something that was more vernacular. Yep. Yeah, very much It so. evolved and it evolved because it worked. Yeah. 
It was robust. So in those, if you if you look at the very early furniture, and and this is in fact a almost a historical journey of design and immigration in Australia. Almost every piece of furniture you see from the early nineteenth century was English in in its form. Mm. The English were the large, you know, that's where the immigration was coming from, and Irish, and Scottish, obviously, but that that was a common market in terms of furniture mm. and household items. So really, there were no designers. Grandpa was no designer, and Mm -hmm. my understanding is there was really no specific designers at TH Brown until the 1950s. Mm. What they did is um, Grandpa used to travel to Europe very regularly, and then Mm. my my father and my uncle Napier used to go to all of the furniture shows, and they would, their gift was to look at what was available internationally and interpret how they'd make it and what would sell. Mm. And during that time, you've moved from this English heritage of fairly utilitarian, Victorian and Edwardian sort of design that hadn't really changed much for a very long time. They continued that until the end of the Great War. Then it started to become an issue of how do we source material because you couldn't get material. And that's when Grandpa started to innovate. And and this is an interesting story. He was the first furniture manufacturer possibly in the world to use pine. He used pine because it was cheap and it was available locally and it was plantation grown. So he was an early investor in SAP4, South Australian Perpetual Forest, which is the huge forest area down, uh, pine forest down near Mount Gambia. And he invested in that and there's articles of him to um, basically lobbying the government of the day to support the pine growing industry, the plantation industry to support furniture. Hitherto, it had only ever pine had only ever been used for boxes, fruit boxes, produce boxes. And he went on and created a range of furniture made entirely of pine and showed that it was robust and durable and could be used. And that that was very much an example of him recognising that supply was not going to be what, what's the year we're talking here? Uh, post World War Two, basically during the nineteen uh, post World War One. I'm sorry, yeah. during the 1920s. 1920s, and then you got yeah. hit with the depression, yeah. which has a whole range of myths and anecdotes that I could share with you share about, away. about what happened during the depression. So they, at that time, they had at Mile End quite a quite a significant business, and around. Hindmarsh Mile End, the West Torrens Council had, in today's vernacular, you would say it was a cluster of industry, of which furniture and timber was one of their keys. So TH Brown moved there, really, and became an anchor tenant, and then you had all of these other furniture companies sort of follow through. And um, it became quite a hub of furniture and, and innovation. So coming up to the Depression, Grandpa had a real desire to maintain employment, a bit like today. Um, He wanted his staff to remain employed. So at that point, they'd been manufacturing, as I said, and then selling through retailers. He actually set up a retail business at that point with Jim, his brother, 
and the people that man that business were the people that he couldn't any longer employ at the manufacturing side, and it increased the joint revenues for the two brothers, which gave more opportunity for their joint employee base. And then his, he would say that his integrity saved his skin. So there's a, a, a famous story where there was a creditors' meeting. I don't know if it was a you know, an official creditors meeting or a whole lot of people that were owed money by T.H. Brown met at his factory one day and, um, you know, basically called to liquidate the business. So he was in trouble. And a gentleman by the name of Sir George Maclay from Maclay Furniture stood up during this sort of everyone probably pummeling grandpa and getting ready to see him destroyed, uh, Sir George Maclay stood up and said, I will not be party to this. Thomas Brown is a man of his word. He makes the best products there are. I will support him and I expect everybody else here to too. And that turned the tide and the company then continued to prosper very readily from that point on. So obviously there was a soft point for um, Sir George Maclay mm. from that moment on. And as it transpired, George's sons lived next door to us, one of his sons in Somerton. Married the and first poor. Yeah, we became um, great mates. All yeah. the families were great yeah. mates at various times during the 50s and 60s. So, yeah. so that was his integrity that saved him. He also loaned some of his staff to keep them busy to the Meyer family to do some of the landscaping along the Torrens River. Okay. So that was a philanthropic act done by a number of industrialists yeah. and, and organisations. And for people Meyer. that don't live in Australia, the Meyer family is a very famous retailer mm. family. Yeah. And... You can imagine the, the relationship that Meyer and T.H. Brown would have together. It, it, was, um, it went for the whole period of the company. Mm. Meyer was our major retailer during the 40s and 50s. And, and it was interesting, like we were a Catholic family and in Adelaide being Catholic in those days wasn't necessarily a passport to success or open doors and nor was being a Jew. So I think there was a natural support each other, cover each other's back between mm. the Meyer family who were Jewish and our family. So I think the halcyon days of T.H. Brown initially were in the 1930s when they really started to become a force to be reckoned with. So the in 1939, much of the furniture in South Australian Parliament House was um, sourced from T.H. Brown. They won the contract for mm. all the seating in the House of Assembly and the Speaker's Lounge and all through everything bar the cabinet work, if you like, uh, for Parliament House. And that furniture's still there today and it doesn't look a day older than the day it was... Um, invested into the place. Every Premier in South Australian history up until, or it may still be the case for all I know, certainly up until Don Dunstan and his Premiership were all sitting on T.H. Brown executive chairs. Mm. But that was the other thing that made us quite unique, because we had a very active and prosperous office furniture division, mm. famous for our executive chairs and reception chairs, which you still see all around the country in mm. executive suites. So Lang Hancock, his office was filled with P.H. Brown furniture. You see our stools 
on the design floor of the great Australian fashion designer Colette Dinnigan. You see them in premier suites around the country in Parliament House. Every time I see a 1950s, 60s or 70s piece of archival footage, if it's in an office, there's something that I helped sandpaper at one point in that place. So, yeah, so we had those two areas. And then during World War II, we got big contracts with the US government. There were seven military bases in South Australia. And the reason we had a lot of military bases in South Australia was it was the middle of the bottom of the continent. Yeah. So if the Japanese... Super hard to get there. Correct. Mm. You'd have a month and a half warning if a Jap Mm. was trying to get to Adelaide. And that's why the defence industry to this day Mm. is secured in Adelaide. Mm. And um, the American bases, with the money they had to throw at the, the problem, were put up very quickly and we got all of the contracts to do all the refectory furniture you know and these were huge tables mm. and there was a famous and a story gazillion of, chairs I'm and sure. a gazillion chairs mm. made for big men mm. so these guys um it was famous one day the american grandpa had finished i don't know maybe 150 12 foot long refectory tables and the american army said oh don't worry we'll come and collect them and the next thing they know there's a traffic jam through the whole of adelaide as these military trucks in convoy made their way to TH Brown to pick up these tables and go back Mm. and nobody was going to stop them. (laughs) And apparently, I'm still trying to find the photo, there is one that existed in the news or the advertiser but I haven't been able to find it, of this massive line of trucks with 12 foot refectory tables on the back. I think you'd better go and find that one, that'd be good for you. It's a fantastic one. Interestingly, where, where Grandpa um, his farm was at a place called Talawi, which is just north east by 12k from uh, Port Piri. Talawi was where General MacArthur made his famous I will return speech. Yeah, right. Very few Australians know that. That's mm. where he was because there was a US military base there. Yeah, yeah. And he happened to be passing there after having been evicted ingloriously from the <laughs> Philippines. That's where he turned around and looked north and said, I will be back. Yeah. Good old Talawi. So my father used to say, Grandpa helped win World War Two as a result of being there, but uh, that was dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the 30s were halcyon days. The 40s were dangerous days because of the war, obviously. So my uncle Napier went off to war with the army and Dad had an incredible time as one of the telegraphers on the Australian Shropshire. Admiral Collins was, you know, sitting in the same room as Dad whenever Dad was on duty. Dad always maintained that he passed the message, the the coded message from the Enola Gay to the US Fleet Command because they were the radar and communications ship in the US 7th Fleet. And he was also privy to the first ever kamikaze attack. Yeah, right. When he literally saw a plane. Did he have any pushback in his own mind from that? Like the Enola Gay dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and the kamikaze. I mean, I I personally would have some sort of feeling about that. Did your dad? We spoke about it often. Yeah. Look, dad was very lucky. He, He had more funny experiences in the war than he had bad experiences, but he had some incredible experiences. But he was a a very, given what his father was like, 
I think it would be fair to say that Dad and his two brothers, Napier and a, another brother, Howard, who was a, a leading thoracic surgeon here in South Australia, these were tough dudes. Like mm. these, um, Dad used to have a line when I was a kid. If I was upset, he said, "If you want love, go to your mother. If you want to get a job done, come to me." And I could imagine his father having said that at 12 or 13 mm. to young infants who aren't his children. Go to mum. I'm, I'm not going to give you love. He's probably too young to even know how to do it anyway. But if you, you know, I've got a job to do. So there, there was a really rigid sort of self-determination amongst these guys. So dad's view was quite clearly if they hadn't dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of American and Allied troops would have died. And I think there is no doubt as history gets sort of raked over that most observers nowadays would concur with that. You know, it was, a, it was an unbelievable thing to have happen. It wasn't their doing. It wasn't them that created the situation where it had to be dropped. They did it to save the lives of themselves and large numbers of them. Mm. And It's not for us to really judge that. I'm more curious about how your dad reacted to it and whether or not he was okay with it. And oh, he didn't care. No. Didn't, didn't bother him in the mm. least. He thought, <laughs> look, dad being a technically oriented guy, here's, here's what he thought. He really admired the Germans because he thought they made the best equipment of any country ever. So he would look at, you know, the Tiger tank or whatever and, and their aircraft and their machinery for making furniture and look at it and say it is just the world's most beautifully made mm. equipment. Mm. And he really admired them even after the war. His view on Japan was really quite jaundiced. He thought that they were dishonourable foe, that they did things that were utterly unquestionable. And until, really, until he was in his early 80s, um, I think I recall he'd never eaten a piece of Japanese food, nor had he travelled there. I think he lucked out, because it's a beautiful country. It is. It is. <laughs> Japanese it food is. is awesome. Um, and, yeah. you know, I... You know... It might sound harsh, but that was the context of his times. Yeah. And then, of course, during the 60s, you had this wave of manufacturing come through yeah. Japan. And it's very simple. Japan and Germany, particularly, boomed after World War II because they were effectively refitted with the world's most up-to-date technology. And they waved through there, you know. So countries, companies like C.H. Brown, if they had all of a sudden, you know, had a factory fire and they had to go and replace every piece of equipment with the latest Italian or German kit, it would have been a game-changer for them. But that's not how companies operated mm. in those days. When the government from the US is helping you do all of this and you've got nothing left anyway, then that's what you do. And you, you'd almost guarantee to succeed. And then, of course, now I think the Japanese might be being subverted by newer equipment coming they, out of China to the Chinese manufacturers, you know, like a, a step 
leapfrog sort of effect, whereas some of the equipment we were using down at TH Brown was very loved. <laughs> very loved. That's a really nice way to put it, especially yeah. if you had that first spindle moulder. Oh, yeah. I mean, we mm. it was fairly Dickensian. The whole factory was pretty if, if TH Brown had invested in capital and bought new machinery that was... Do you reckon it would have been a different kettle of fish? It could have been. It could have been, but I don't think the family, the Brown family, had... The wherewithal to want to do that. As is often the case, Grandpa founded it. He had three sons, two of which were involved in the business. Each of them, Uncle Napier had eight kids, Dad had six. So there was my other uncle, (laughs) Howard, had uh, eight. So there was 22 Mm. nephews directly related to the generation. All the good jobs went to my uncle's family because they were older. My uncle, the surgeon, his children mostly went off and did medicine and law Mm. and science. You know, they were the academic, more academically oriented, no engagement with the furniture side other than some ownership. And then Dad's kids were all relatively younger than my uncle Napes. And so, you know, I was, you know, when my cousins were out on the delivery truck with their uncle, the driver, I was sandpapering sharp edges off very sharp table legs and um, building calluses up from a very early age for a long time. How much fun is sanding? Oh, mate, it was... uh, (laughs) They used to... So, from the age of 14, every time there was a school holiday, we would go down there. Um, Press-ganged would be the correct term Uh for my brother and I. Justin and I would get press-ganged, off we'd go, first day of school holiday, no time for a holiday. Dad had a visceral hatred of nepotism. He would not have a bar of any nepotism. So his standard line to the factory director was, Simon and Justin are here for the holidays. Make sure they do the hardest jobs you can find. And our hardest job was sandpaper and chair legs. And the forklift would come up and deliver three or four pallets mm. of several thousand chair legs. Mm. And we would have to sandpaper the edges see you in a couple of weeks yeah and all day every day just Mm. sandpaper but i took really great great pleasure in it you know in a perverted sort of way we got to work in every part of the factory occasionally when we were good we got onto the truck but most of the time we were out sandpapering working in the machine shop sweeping but the worst job of all was when we were used as camels or bullocks so unfortunately the plant was such that where the furniture came out from the machine shop and the chair making plant was about a 150 metre twisty bitumen road to the polish shop. Mm. And guess what yeah. we had to do? Carrying. With a homemade truck that had, I don't think it had. I don't think they'd heard of bearings in those days with small little wheels that caught every every twig, every stone. We would lug hundreds and hundreds of kilos of timber in the middle of summer when it's 40 degrees, mm. one and a half um, hundred metres around at the potter shop, and as soon as we'd unload it, back and do it again. And we mm. would do that for five days running. Mm. It was un. Bearable, yeah. and we kept saying, "Dad, give us a weekend, and we could get a lawnmower engine." You know, we see what they're doing in Asia, you know, with the tuk tuks or whatever. We could do no, absolutely not. You're going to do it the hard way. 
That's the character building was his famous word, character building. Uh, it seems to me, in hindsight maybe, that it's a little bit shooting yourself in the foot. Well, the reason you invest in capital is to make productivity yeah. easier. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you reckon if he had had a different mindset, you know, going and buying that best machinery, whatever it was, maybe the business would have been more sustainable? I look, I don't think so. I don't think so. We invested a lot of money in equipment. So Dad would go every year. So you were buying, yeah, right. Oh, no, he was, TH Round was famous for having the latest furniture manufacturing equipment. So we had the first of, you know, we were the first company in Australia to do bent timber. And there's a funny story about that. Bent timber came out of World War II as a result of RF, radio frequency technologies invented during the war. And they discovered that if you irradiate with weight, with high frequency radio waves you can quickly set glue and that allowed them to bend laminated timber so the equipment they had and my brother and I were only talking about this last night bearing in mind they were at mile end just under the flight path of the planes coming into the Mm. airport they couldn't uh, you could always tell when the equipment was on because they all the planes lost communications with the airport. So they put... Not very dangerous. No, they put a stop to that. And then they had to try and work out how, the machi- how to tell when the machine was on or off. And Dad had been reading some magazine. He got a, got a fluoro tube, walked in, hung it on the roof of the wood shop with a, mm. the glue room, they used to call it. And if that went on, yeah. they knew that the machine was on. <laughs> so yeah, right. the amount of radio frequency it was blasting out was probably pretty huge. So as a result of that, that allowed them to innovate in design and make things yep. they'd never made. In fact, that table over there is an example of it. Yeah, we're looking, at a, wood. we're looking at a coffee table that's got three bent U-shaped members yeah. and a glass top will go on top of that. Beautiful. So that's the Aquarius yeah. table and we've just re-released that yes. designed in 1968 by Dad. So the technology was really key. We had the first flatbed planer, we had the first edge routing table top machine. We, we were renowned for our our equipment you just and didn't have quality. trucks that had but motors anything on pr- No, <laughs> not if it involved his children. Oh, right. right? <laughs> not if it involved his children. But the, uh. the death knell for T.H. Brown and the industry <laughs> happened in the mid-1970s when the Eastern European furniture started to come into Australia, feeding the Italian immigration and European immigrants, which we we did a very good job of. Uh, you know, the busiest time in our company's history was when we were making, if you like, Italian-European-style furniture in the 60s and 70s. Then it became imported and we couldn't compete. Then you had the Chinese and the Asians start to come in with even cheaper goods. And Dad, in 1987, you know, saw the writing on the wall, we can't compete. What they could compete with was the office furniture, which was largely bespoke. 
and that's now what they produce. So workspace commercial furniture, which is the name that TH Brown now operates under, specialises in commercial furniture, mm. all of which is bespoke. They've got still one of the largest furniture plants in the country here in Melrose Park, you know, 150 plus staff and they're second only to Chevelos as a furniture manufacturer in the country. So they found a niche, but Dad at that point, um, you know, he was in his retirement years he wanted to take his money did he feel like he hmm, it's a couple of things did he regret the brand name changing did he regret not being able to allow you to take it over or (laughs) my father never had a regret i don't think he didn't Mm. give a damn he had his money he wanted to retire Uh you know he he wanted to tour the world he wanted to live the life he'd spent his whole life working towards. Yeah, right. And look, really. What about you? Where did you feel about it? I didn't give a damn. I got a, I got a nice trust payout. Myself. I was quite happy. <laughs> I'd, I'd left the company, so I, I joined yeah. the company. Um, so I started studying at Universe, business admin, marketing. Yeah. Not a degree, a, a diploma level. I was doing that for three years from working at TH Brown, both in the plant and then as a sales cadet, if you like. And um, that had me working sort of more directly with my Uncle Napier, who I adored. Yeah, okay. Uh, Uncle Nape was my... And he's my namesake too, Simon Napier Brown. I just adored him, and for some reason he took a shine to me for whatever reason. So he was teaching me marketing and selling and how to get on with people and how to... The customer-facing side of T.H. Brown, which is where he saw me going. Um, but around that time, my eldest brother, who was, uh, um, had just been studying medicine and then became a mathematician, ended up being an actuary, he joined IBM in about 1975. Now, IBM in those days was the equivalent of Apple or Google mm. or Amazon now. They mm. were the company du jour. And because he worked there, I was able to get a job there when I was 21, one of the youngest um, trainee reps they ever employed in Australia. I moved to Sydney and never looked back. I was working for what I thought was the bee's knees and if anything I was embarrassed by how backward TH Brown and the manufacturing Mm. sector was. Yeah, IBM would have been like state of the art. They, they were the bee's knees, mm. you know, their level of integrity, the quality of their product, the level of support. And in fact, my, my desire to see all of those things actualised at TH Brown was met at IBM similarly. So I, I always took the view, you know, I worked for the company making the finest furniture in this country. Now I work for the world's finest company, you know, that's the way I see myself, you know, mm. if I'm going to drive a car, it's mm. going to be a Merc or a BMW, mm. you know, like I, I saw excellence as being the, the, the underscore element value to my career. So I, I was off doing that. My brother was in the computer industry. My next one, another brother was a vet. And then my, my next older brother, Justin, he was the one that stayed with the company. He did 
product design, industrial design. He was going to be dad's follow-up, and he did most of the furniture design in the 70s and 80s. So he, he designed on the way out. But prior to that, there, there actually, prior to dad in the late 50s, probably, or early 50s, we didn't have a designer. No. That, it was so, a drafting role. More than yeah, drafting. Yeah, yeah. Or even just it came out of the factory floor, I'm sure. Like, it came yeah. from a need. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that idea of design and how it fits in with manufacturing in Australia, in particular TH Brown. Your dad's the CEO, but he's also the designer. I could imagine him putting such a little amount of time into the idea of what design is. In fact, mm. he's probably only doing design because there's nobody else there or he's got an idea and he just wants to implement that idea. Yeah, more, more the latter. I mean, he did study design. Okay. So he, when he left school, he went off to the School of Mines in those days to do technical design or technical drawing. Mm. So he was, and then in the war, he was in radio technology. So he was very much engineering and technically mm. focused. He actually preferred to be in the design room. Yeah, okay. Than, and than doing it other does stuff. sound like it's more of a technical or an engineering yep. thing as opposed to an aesthetic thing. Nowadays, when we hear the word design, I think there's a very strong association with the aesthetics of something. Correct. Correct. Well, that, that's interesting. Because of our position in Australia and our reputation, we ended up being the manufacturing licensees for the famous aesthetic designers from Europe. So, for example, that table over there is a Wickelso table made under licence. This one, the glass one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With the stag head. Yeah. And Dad, Dad was funny. Uh, that's a TH Brown manufactured one there. And Dad used to say, look, the European furniture looks fantastic, some of it, but it's made like crap. So if I'm going to make it, I'm going to improve it. So he was very mm -hmm. famous for improving on what he thought was pretty poor manufacturing, okay. not design. So he, he and Uncle Nate would look at what they saw happening trend-wise, you know, and the Scandi movement, the mid-century movement, mm -hmm. really came directly out of a lack of material availability in Europe post-World War II and a lack of manpower. So they had to do the most they could with the littlest amount of um, resource. And, and but there were people that were very skilled aesthetically as well involved in the teamwork. There were. In and fact, yeah, they I, had it. We didn't. Yeah. We, we didn't do that in Australia. We were, no. a, we were a drafting led yeah. copier. And all the industry was, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know, Grant Featherston and other Australian, you know, Burgess, Parker, Chiswell, all of these people really copied um, what what was out in Europe and in many instances made it a lot better. And they tended to use a slightly different mix of timbers. So in Europe, a lot of it was rosewood. We're in here, we had blackwood and teak and myrtle and mm. sort of more indigenous um, trees in many respects. So Dad would go over there. We, were, we introduced the Lazy Boy into Australia, so we were the manufacturers for Lazy Boy. We were the manufacturers for Namco. So we were the first company in Australia to produce tubular furniture in the 50s. Tubular metal furniture. Yeah, and you know why? All the tubing had been produced for aircraft manufacture and after the war they didn't need it anymore. Mm. So you had this massive stock of material which was effectively a new... And the equipment to yeah. use and, it. Yeah, and so they just repurposed that. 
Namco came, we came to Namco, or they, they came to us and said, we want you to open us up in Australia. Okay, we'll manufacture it. And Dad was um, very proud of the fact that, you know, he actually innovated in tubular furniture um, more so than Namco. During that stage, you had another little curiosity. You would know the Zeta, the car made by mm. George Lightburn Industries. Dad designed the seats for the ill-fated Zeta. <laughs> He was he was very proud of that. Was he? <laughs> that it was ill-fated or that he did oh, the seats for it? Both, both. It was yeah. just so uniquely South Australian. Yeah. You know, a fibreglass manufacturer of yeah. cement mixes goes and makes a car, which had it not been for the Mini and had they put a slightly bigger engine in it, like a vehicle engine rather than a lawnmower engine. Did your dad ever have a Zeta? Oh, God, no. No. He wouldn't drive a Zeta. No. There's one in the, um, yeah, the, the Birdwood, Birdwood uh, Museum. Museum. Yes. Yeah. No, there, he, no. Look, he had six kids, so we, we were... He's into, not going to fit him in a Zeta. No. We used to, if we went on a family trip anywhere, we had, you know, big American luxury Dodge Phoenix and yeah. um, another big car and we'd all pile into the two cars and yeah. off we'd go. Do you know... Oh, just getting back to this notion of design and how it did work very well for the Scandinavians. The I was talking to Brian Parks just the other week, and uh, the jam factory, who he's the CEO of now, yeah. Yeah. was set up to try and facilitate exactly that yeah. teamwork. You've got manufacturing base, of which South Australia has a or did have yep. large manufacturing base with a desire to get designers and manufacturers and marketing teams together yep. to produce successful objects, not just yep. furniture, but objects in general. No. And they've done a brilliant job. I love the jam factory. Yeah, but it done. didn't succeed in the sense that the Scandinavians succeeded in. They no. didn't have a mass production capacity that's, that's come out of that. It's been more batch production and artwork based. I'm wondering whether or not if your dad, uh, when TH Brown was going strong in the 50s and 60s, had got a famous designer involved, whether or not there could have been, or it just... Interesting you say that. Um, I remember vividly at about 1967, driving on my way to sandpaper chair legs, on holidays, I remember because I, I was <laughs> You're really, not going to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I was really interested in TH Brown. Like I, yeah. I really was a zealot. I was just so proud of the yeah, company yeah. and my family. I so wanted to see it as the best of the best that I, you know, I was really invested in it. And I remember saying to Dad, you know, I keep hearing about this company Fleur. Yeah. And um, they what seemed to do well. And Dad turned around and said, yeah, that's Fred Lyon. Yeah. And uh, Grant Featherston, these two are the leading designers in the country, you know, and, you know, they're, they're leading the pack in design. And I, I remember saying to him, well, you know, you're Peter Brown, go and buy them. <laughs> Why don't you get one? Mm. And he said, uh, no, no, I don't think we need them. So he was never trying to set a trend or create aesthetic leadership. He he would rather do a good job of making whatever the the mega yeah. market required at the time. Which so he he clearly had a commercial idea 
and he pursued that idea, which I think is completely fine. If you've got a business model, go with that business model. I'm yeah. just trying to nut out why there were periods of design in Australia that really worked and why there were periods in Australia where it didn't work so well. Yeah. Look, I, I think the halcyon days were the 60s. I, I think the mid-century... In terms of Australian design, why, why was that period? What the, were the ingredients that allowed that to happen? I think we, we followed or emulated, you know, this very vibrant mid-century movement out of um, Scandinavia. We picked the best of their form and function used local materials to Australianise it and made it extremely well. I mean, um, and I think if there was one determinant in our furniture during Australia, it was the use in in the 60s was the use of teak and blackwood. Mm. They were quite unique timbers and the Australian manufacturers could do a sideboard in teak that to this day is a work of art. And there's still there's loads of them around. The tables are still going. The chairs are oh, still yeah. going. You know, and you mm. you couldn't make one for for anything short of many thousands of dollars. And that was what was being produced by us and by Parker, and by um, oh, I, look, Parker. I think would be as similar a company to TH Brown as any out there. And they're arguably the two most famous for their quality and their aesthetics. And Tony Parker was more design oriented than Dad. And there was talk over the years that we should merge. When things were starting to get tight, I remember we were looking at potentially taking over one of the big eastern states. I, I don't know if it was Burgess Parker, Chiswell was one of them. And Dad wanted access to the market through those brands. So what had occurred, because of the cost of freight from day dot, Getting a load of chairs to Melbourne or Sydney or Perth was a really expensive exercise in the days before cheap transport. So if you made a product that cost as much to make as anybody on the eastern seaboard, but then when you finished it, you've got to get it to the main market, you've by definition got a cost impediment. Mm. And Dad spent his whole working life trying to find a way around that. So in the end, we opened up a plant in Perth, in Claremont in Perth in the early 1960s, and we opened up a plant in Albury-Wodonga in the early 1970s. Albury-Wodonga is halfway between Melbourne and Sydney. Correct. And and they were quite viable. We made a lot of furniture, uh, and a lot of people aren't aware that we had those three plants. So at this point, you know, we had a very large number of staff, but every day that was going by, the furniture was being undercut by the imports, and it really... It became a war of attrition that we could never win. And then once the government, sorry, once unionism started to level the wages for workers in Adelaide to emulate Sydney and Melbourne, we had no chance. So one after another, you would the whole South Australian manufacturing hub. So the wages died. in South Australia were lower? Previously, yeah. So you had this natural balancing effect for freight. But as that under the ACTU, Bob Hoare, that changed. I, whether or not we were ever at the same level as the Eastern States, I don't know, but I suspect probably pretty close. And that, that was really the death knell for Australian, South Australian manufacturing. So it hit the white goods, it hit the automotive sector, mm. it hit the furniture, it hit produce, it hit 
everything. And frankly, from the, the 1960s, mid-60s, the writing was on the wall. I remember my father saying, all during those years, we're dead. You're just going to see South Australia hollowed out. And that's exactly mm. what happened. And nobody seemed to know what to do to stop it. Because the commercial advantage had been uh, effectively eliminated. Correct. Mm. Correct. We, we lost the benefit of that cluster, that hub, to the market weight of the eastern states and um, never recovered. You know, and a lot of the companies during that time went out of business. You know, they went into liquidation. Parker mm. and companies like mm. that, Shizwell Burgess. All of the local ones, Noblet, McRobb, they all died on the vine. And that was it. <laughs> and we, you know, we did effectively. I mean, had it not been for some of the executives working at TH Brown when Dad was the chairman and managing director in the late 80s, had they not sold it, which was basically Dad sold it really for the land, you know, at five and a half acres or something by mile end. Which is really close to the CBD. You know, yeah, worth its yeah. weight in gold. That's yeah. now an industrial park, T.H. Brown Industrial Park. They bought it for land value. My, you know, our family's view was, Dad, you're giving it away. Like, but he didn't see it as necessarily having a value as a brand, but it did for its land. So these, this sort of management buyout occurred. One of my cousins was part of that, Quentin Brown, who I worked with for many years. He was the longest-serving grandson and did enormous work with the company. He and a number of other people, Adrian De Bruin, who owned SAP4, and a whole lot of southeast um, businesses came in wood milling and stuff. So he was looking to vertically integrate his yeah. milling activities yeah. Yeah. and transport activities. So he bought it. They kept trading as TH Brown for oh, probably another five years and then decided that they just, and, and they started to focus on hospitality furniture. So the new Hilton that was built in. Um, Victoria Square was fully furnished with mm. TH Brown. Most of the office buildings at that time were furnished with TH Brown. And then they decided to open up nationally with the Workspace Commercial Furniture brand and, and ceased manufacture of domestic furniture. Mm. And so, but they're still going, which is... Oh, they're, they're yeah. booming. One of yeah. the largest of their sort in the country. So, Simon, you didn't want to take your father's place... No, I wanted to create my own world. But now you are. For the, three years yeah. ago, you, you bought three, the brand. Three years, yep. That's correct. So you know, I've been in the computer industry for 40 years nearly. I just decided that, well, A, I was being, I, I'm too old for the industry. It's, it's emerged. It's the computer industry. It's moved past me. This is the case. You know, I still don't feel as though I'm old, but apparently I am. So I wanted passion and um, I had always loved the T.H. Brown stuff mm. and I, I just basically went, bugger it, I'm going to start reissuing the T.H. Brown stools to begin with and see what happens. And what is it about the stools that are special? Oh, look, I think by any measure they would be described as the most iconic piece of furniture, a stool ever made in Australia by any by any measure, mm. was recently inaugurated into the South Australian Design Industry Hall of Fame as a, as a design. It was in the National Gallery. It appears in every international magazine about Australian furniture. It is the, along with the Featherston chair, it would, and maybe the Snelling 
web chair, it would be considered to be one of the most iconic pieces of Australian furniture ever. They're collected internationally. They appear all over the world at Sotheby's and, and upmarket auctioneers, and it's quite unique. What makes it unique is its um, boomerang shape, which was quite common in the late 50s, so mm. again, nothing unique there in terms of design. The fact that it had a screw mechanism to allow it to be height adjustable was very unique. The fact that it had that beautiful hand-shaped back was absolutely aesthetically to die for. Initially made in teak, then blackwood, now in ash, because it's sustainable. So it was a design icon. And since we reissued them two and a half years ago, the price of the second-hand ones has come close to a thousand bucks now. And that's not bad for an article that's 60 years old. Mm. And I'm pretty sure from memory when we sold them in the 1970s, they were $186. So, you know, they're they, a good investment for the people that have bought them. So the next thing I wanted to do was make sure that it was made by the original company. I, you know, I knew the guys from Workspace. I, I worked with Trevor Gould, the managing director of Workspace, when I was a kid. He was an apprentice at TH Brown when I was down there. And... Um, I just rang him and I said, I want to relaunch these stools and I want you to make them. There's nobody else I want to make them and I want them here in Adelaide. And he went, I'd be delighted. And I said, well, I, you know, I own the brand, not the company. He owns the company, but I Did you the buy brand. the brand or did you own it? No, I, I just um, registered it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nobody had registered it for 20 years. Um, so I registered the trademark. Um, yeah, good on you. Made an arrangement with Workspace where they manufacture the product. Yeah. It's a great brand extension for them and a lot of history. You know, it allows them to capitalise on what they bought, which was the company, mm. and so they should. You know, there was no copyright or trademark or, or uh, registered design. Nothing was covering the old catalogue. Did you register the designs? You can't register them because they're, they're 50, gone. They're 60 gone, years old. Yeah. Uh, many of the designs were registered by Dad in the day, so they were registered but long gone. And, yeah. you know, I think with some of the manufacturers nowadays, they don't care about design registration anyway, some of the importers, and, you know, they just steal Australian design, which is a really they soft... They design from anywhere. They're, you know, they're design rapists, and yeah. I hate... I hate that, but you can't, you know, how do you fight that? I mean, maybe, maybe that's coming, but... So the whole objective was to make the chairs better than they were to begin with. As I, as I say to people, we had 60 years of history telling us what the flaws were. You know, the mechanism needed to be stronger. Yeah. Um, people are heavier now, so we needed to make it stronger. So there's more dowels, there's better glues, there's thicker, thicker back rails none of which you would notice. The aesthetic of the chair hasn't altered one bit, but it's monumentally stronger. Mm. They're still guaranteed for 10 years. And to add the, the heirloom, there was always confusion over whether or not this chair is a TH Brown chair or not. So I decided we would implement a registered certified plate. So every single 
article we sell has got a plate with a serial number, year of manufacture, a compliance certificate that's by our stockists is filled out, date of purchase, serial number, in a nice little pack with care instructions and all the stuff mm. you need and a warranty explanation and you've got an heirloom. Keep the envelope with all of that stuff. Make sure the badge stays mm. there, which it will. You're not going to get that off. And for, forever more, people will know exactly who made it. And that's um, on every single product. Mm. And you've made the stool. You've got another stool. So that's the Martell stool. Yep. That came out at the same time as the Danish bar stool, obviously because they needed one that wasn't swivel and could fit under a kitchen or table bench. They were initially bar stools, of course. Nobody had eating kitchens in those days. And, mm. and that was the other reason why we went started off with the stools. You know, the whole design trend or, and house size requires people to be eating in at a kitchen. So the whole market for stools has grown dramatically since we made these for bars. In fact, Living space and housing design has had the biggest impact on Australian furniture design. Look, I was one of, we had six boys, right? We had a big home to manage six boys so we didn't kill each other. And that involved big rooms and lots of them. And Dad had this view that furniture was made to fit his house. And I remember when the L-shaped lounge suites came out in the early 70s, and I remember saying to Dad, you know, why don't you make an L-shaped lounge room? And he'd say, why? You have a lounge and three-seater three and two armchairs. But, Dad, houses aren't that size anymore. And he said, well, I don't care. That's the size I'm making my furniture. And then I started saying, but in the eastern seaboard, people are living in units. Well, people that live in units don't buy our furniture. They're going to, Dad. They mm. couldn't buy it now if they wanted mm. to. So, you know, in the 70s, there was that big move towards massive wall units. You mm. know, see them? Yeah. And, and I can tell you, the wall units we made were second to none. They were magnificent. But there's not a, not a room in the world now, I think, that would fit one, you know, and people want a cleaner aesthetic anyway. So... Um, I think people don't live in their houses for as long either. There's a turnover. Yeah. People moving, it's, it's a hassle. Yeah. You know, and we, we get calls all the time. You know, the number of people around the country that contact me directly, and I love it, where they say, you know, I've got a photo of this thing that my mother yeah. gave me 60 years ago when she yeah. was dying. Do you know what it is? And I go, duh. And I've still got the original catalogs. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've even got a 1927 price list. <laughs> you know, like there aren't many companies that can take you back 100 years of yeah. pricing catalog and stories. And I get great joy out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Said, That's changed. The housing styles have changed. And the reason I think that the 60s mid-century modern and retro stuff works so well as it's so light of frame so it's visually see-through so people can see their lovely rugs under a coffee table and you don't get this feeling that the room's broken up into big blocks of timber it's light and that like and the style is awesome too you're making reissues of designs that your father and mm -hmm. your uncle put together do you have plans to introduce new designs into the range or are you going to... What a great question. Yes, we do. Here's my dilemma. There's over 2,000 pieces that I could reissue. 
Yeah. Not, you know, like, You're not going to do them all? No. And, and we're slowly but surely just finding out which ones are the most sought after and saleable for yeah. the price because they're still expensive to manufacture. So there's a really fine line. So we had to go premium end of the market to get the price point to make it worthwhile doing. And then there are so many pieces that we could reissue. It's a bit overwhelming. I have contacted a couple of Adelaide designers through the Jam Factory and the UniSA Design School with a view to making some new products based on the existing products. So, for example, that coffee table, that Frisco coffee table, Mm. my resellers are telling me that people want a side table, like a lamp table. Mm. Could we make a lamp table version of that? Could we make a bedside table version of that with one drawer? And now now you're talking, so we can extend the old products, Mm. keep the exact look and feel, Mm. but innovate and Mm. and go into new markets. And that seems to be the most sensible approach for the time being. Look, I, I had a desire and still do have a desire to create some sort of design TH Brown award, design award, Um, Unfortunately, according to many designers, that approach has been bastardised a bit over the last few years by companies trying to get access to designers cheaply or stealing their IP. How you go about that. Correct. Mm. But it it seems to have left a a sour taste amongst some designers. And and whether or not that's why... If you set it up differently, you'll you'll find that they'll be punters, yeah. That's my view. So I I want to re-establish or to continue to build primacy of the brand, TH Brown, as as a famous Australian manufacturer and a famous Australian family business. I want to celebrate my father and his design and my uncle Napier, who I just adored. They were great men, leaders in their field, and they deserve some recognition. And I think a lot of the recognition has been focused on just one or two or three Eastern States designers, many of whom had an architectural background mm. or sculptural background. They did. Mm. So their work was looked good, but it wasn't manufactured terribly well. And certainly that's the case. Mm. With some. I won't, I won't name them, but no, no, no. Dad we used we to all laugh know who they them. are. It's okay. It does seem that you're taking a lead from the resellers of the... In part. Yeah, yeah, in part, which I think is the way it should be. You've got... It's okay for a designer to come up with a design and even get it manufactured by somebody, but if you can't sell it, what's the point? It's a folly. Well, it's a folly. Okay. Yeah, pretty good word. Yeah. So if you've got a team that includes a reseller, marketing, manufacturer, and somebody that can come up with the right proportions and the right way it goes together. So the manufacturer builds it. They know how it's going to go together together and make it last yep. the designer has the aesthetic sensibilities yep. and the reseller knows that they can sell it at that price point and if they can't there's a feedback loop yep. and those three components are i think necessary if you're going to get anywhere in the world a situation mm. where a designer actually makes it a virtuous circle it's a, it's a circle yep. there's a feedback yep. loop yep and we've done that and we are in fact 
That's why we sell through specialist mid-century dealers, because they understand the history. What excites people about TH Brown is the narrative. You know, where else can you buy an Australian-made product from a company that's the oldest in the Southern Hemisphere, mm. the most famous brand in Australian history, and still get it today? And there's definitely a movement in the last few years away from the cheaper imported furniture. Mm. Look, there are population growth is such that, you know, they're always going to sell, you know, unit blocks are going to be filled with, you know, relatively cheap disposable furniture. And I grew up in an era where no furniture was disposable, mm. nor should it be if it's made properly. So there is a movement amongst people that have sort of respect for our country's design and manufacturing history and respect for themselves that they want a top product that they can hand on as an heirloom. They're moving back to good quality furniture. And that's what's selling. That's what people love about the TH Brown mm. story. Mm. And we've had products go out that were faulty and they've you know, no questions asked. We we ship them back and we replace them, we repair them, and we make mm. sure that whatever was wrong is You've fixed. Got integrity yourself. And absolutely no questions mm. asked. And that's expensive for us, but I wouldn't sell them if I didn't have no. that sort of coverage. <laughs> Not in the least. And nor would your father, nor your grandfather. Oh, dad would be rolling in his mm. grave, and grandpa mm. would be beating me with a stick. <laughs> You've got a legacy. I do. You know, and. Just, just some other asides that I think are really worth mentioning. Grandpa, because of the sheer workforce size, after World War II and World War I, they had a lot of trouble getting labour, a lot of trouble. And there was a lot of men coming back from both wars that were hideously injured. So in the 40s, we started putting wheelchair access to every part of the factory for a lot of upholsterers who were in wheelchairs. We had Eastern European immigrants after World War II that were coming in and being facilitated with English language and being helped, loaned money. Grandpa often loaned money to individuals that he valued because they needed a hand. He also co-founded Bedford Industries as a sheltered workshop for tuberculosis society initially and he saw that as a natural so he gave them most of their equipment to begin with so that they could make ladders and stuff and he was a board member of Playford Industries for many many years. Bedford Industries is still going. Yeah no it's huge it's very yeah. very large largest in the country as a sheltered workshop environment we were instrumental in the creation of that he co-founded Kuyonga Golf Club and, um, you know, was good mates with the Rymals and all of that. He also was involved in bringing Don Bradman to Adelaide and a guy called Bagshaw, who was a famous um, cricketer in the, in the 30s. Grandpa personally sponsored him to relocate to Adelaide. He, he built the first boat for the Summit and Surf Lifesaving Club because we, we grew up there. So Dad built a boat for them, the TH Brown, their first timber, beautiful boat. I wish they still had that. Um, so they were very philanthropic in terms of helping the Aborigines. We had some of the first Indigenous peoples working at TH Brown that were ever employed in the industry. And I'm very proud of that too. You know, we helped re-landscape the Torrens River during the Depression because people needed... 
the city needed to be beautified and it was a sort of a national mm. infrastructure type project. Mm. At the same time, being a ruthless businessman that was there to make a buck and, and mm. be successful. One story that Dad used to share, which I, I think typifies my grandfather perfectly, in the 1960s, um, you know, we had a 12.15, the siren went and all, all the workers could go off for their 45-minute break. Grandpa walked around the plant at about five past 12 and noticed a man sitting on a pile of wood uh, eating his lunch. And Grandpa, you know, absolutely went ballistic. Oh, you can't do that, yada, yada, yada. And he came straight on into Dad's office, who was the production director. He said, Peter, I want you to fire that man. He's having lunch before the whistle. That's unacceptable. What a bad... I'm not going to accept that. That man's out. Dad's sort of going, oh, Dad, do we really? And he said, yes, I want that man out. I'm not going to employ anyone that breaks the rules like that. So Dad says, OK, I'll, I'll go out and I'll fire him. So Dad goes out and he abused me. So the dad goes out to this guy, still sitting there eating his lunch, and the guy says, oh, yeah, mate, you know, can I help you? And dad said, um, yeah, look, you know, I'm Peter Brown, and my father, the owner of this company, has just come in and told me that you're eating your lunch ahead of the bell. And, um, you know, I've got to let you know that we're going to fire you. And the guy says, you can't fire me. And Dad says, I can do what I like. And he said, no, you can't. I work for the PMG. I'm putting in a telephone line. <laughs> so, you know, never occurred to him that he couldn't fire this person. Uh, I think he probably needs to ask beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you kind of need to employ people before you could fire them. Mm. So that was, you know, Dad had a million, million anecdotes about TH and sort yeah. of things. Mm. He was pretty irascible. You know, he was always doing something. Look, Simon, what are the new challenges coming up for you personally? Yeah, look, it's hard to manufacture in Australia. <laughs> it's hard. It's costly. It's complex. Like, I, I'm in a position where I'm not going to employ people. I, I can't afford to employ people. It's, there's too many limitations around that. So everything we do is outsourced, which it it must be because I don't have the, you know, I'm at a stage in life where I can't risk my lifelong savings. I've got four children that I want to provide for. I don't think any of the kids will go into the TH Brown business moving forward. They're all got their own careers. Their own stuff. And, and I don't expect them to, nor do I necessarily want them to, but I want it to exist. My wife's younger than I so she's in a position to continue it for many years after myself and hopefully it will continue to grow as a recognised brand. You know, we will get some investment into it at some point and grow the brand and the product range and keep utilising Workspace Commercial Furniture as the manufacturer because they're set up for that and lead the market with quality design and history mm. and maybe some new designs. As I said, initially bespoke off what we already have because there's enough beauty there. And it makes a lot those. of sense. Yeah, I mean, there's mm. no... But I personally would love to come out with a range of completely new furniture at some mm. point mm. and that would be done by a local designer, an Australian designer, not, not necessarily South Australian, that really wants to create something uniquely Australian. That would be my dream, what it might look like. I don't know. That's a designer's job. <laughs> the mm. designers can work that well, out. Come back to this idea with the teamwork, the right designer with the right manufacturer and the right marketing people will come up with a design that will definitely sell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, some of the things that have been mentioned, I mean, we used to make lamps, for God's sake. <laughs> There's one in the Adelaide Library. 
1950s anodised aluminium waiting room lamp. Dad used to make all the lamps and whatever out of timber for home. I, he threw all the furniture away when he moved out of the house. All these works of art just thrown away. Somebody got them. Somebody's got them, but I've got photos of them mm. and they're easily made, so I could reissue some sort of you know, objet d'art, if you like, which, which appeals to me. But I'm just too busy just running with what mm. I've got for the time being. Mm. You know, I look, I'm not working 70-hour weeks, and nor do I intend to, and no. I set the business up with a view to being able to run it remotely from anywhere in the world, which we can do, thank God, because I'm at a time in life where I want to travel when I can, <laughs> when it's safe to do so, and keep building the brand. And that's, mm. what, that's what I'll do in terms of challenges. I mean, the world's got enough challenges just for the time being. I mean, it's the scariest time I've ever gone through. Mm. We Look, we're talking the end of March 2020 and it's virus season for the entire globe. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Look, it's got to be the scariest human moment since the Depression and two wars and the Spanish flu. And I'm hoping... My family and I were only talking about it last night. I hope that it leads to some changes in behaviour amongst the world. I think local community might take a new importance, I hope, because that's what's been lost, is local community. And that's more important than people realised. And, and if you can evoke that more widely, that in turn will help like climate change, environmental sustainability... You know, it's a nat- it's a more natural act, and if it's a natural act, it will benefit the environment and mm. the people and the resource use in a way that might make the world a very different place for my children's children. Mm. If I can be part of that, I'd be delighted to be. Mm. Yeah, it's the legacy that's going onwards. You're feeding forwards, aren't you? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So you're busy doing TH Brown. Do you have hobbies? Not really. <laughs> I've got a 12-year-old, so I've got three kids that are... Your hobbies are their hobbies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, my, my younger son's 12. He's um, a, a, a state swimmer. Uh-huh. He's um, going to be an Olympian. He is his goal, and he's capable of it. And yeah, so if you've ever had a child that's a competitive swimmer, with those sorts of lofty goals, it's six days a week. Um, Early mornings. Oh, yeah. Mm. And, and I love it. I mean, it's social because I work from home. Mm. You know, I need a social outlet. So yeah, yeah, there's yeah. some beautiful people in the clubs, which I thoroughly enjoy. We get out and about, yeah. regional swimming comps and whatever. Yeah. And then I've got three elder children, that one of which you know runs four of Adelaide's best restaurants and bars. Oliver runs Nola, the whiskey bar in town, runs the Stag Hotel, runs um, Yasu George, mm-hmm. the Mediterranean restaurant, and a pizza cocktail bar called Anchovy Bandit at Paynham. So he is going to need some help at some point. And then my eldest daughter is an executive a deputy director of the Property Council of South Australia. They're all at a stage where hopefully, God willing, children will start to emerge. So I'm soon going to get into the grandparenting side. I'm already grandparent of um, about 25 baby fish that my 12-year-old <laughs> has bred in the last three weeks. So he's obsessed with fish and swimming. So, Good uh, God. Yeah, it's as cute as all get out so yeah, yeah. Um, good. he wants to breed those so 
I'm fairly busy. My wife and I both, my wife works. She's a marketing executive. Uh-huh. She, she works with me. She does all of our social media and yeah, marketing yeah. strategy and yeah. advertising and media. So she's fairly busy. So in between keeping our house clean and tidy, we don't do a lot. Travelling is why I was in Sydney up until three years ago. Uh, two years ago, I returned back to Adelaide after basically 40 years away. And I just wanted to come home, be with my family, my mm. extended family, which mm. I'm doing. I um, just walk on the beach with my dog Otis mm. and travel. My favourite spot in the whole universe is the Flinders Ranges. Mm. Which is... Effectively, where your granddad came from. Correct. There is mm. something in my soul mm. when I go to the Flinders. You know, it's it the is world's so amazing. It's the world's oldest mountain range. Mm. It is surreal. You know, it is. We, mm. um, Grandpa spent a lot of time with the Aborigines in the Lower Flinders. Um, he was a friend of Albert Namajira's. He used to go up to Alice Springs. You know, in the old days, in his old his his big Buick motor vehicles. You know in dirt roads in the 20s and 30s and 40s to catch up with his mates. And he'd come back with real boomerangs and real objects that, again, have all gone. Dad probably threw them out too. So there is something up there that draws me uh, in quite a supernatural way. Mm. Uh, So I want to spend as much time as I can up there. Mm. Regrettably, my wife thinks there should be a Hilton Hotel up in the Flinders, and then she'd gladly join me. But at the moment, no. no. <laughs> at the moment, we're, she's not quite as camping orientated as I am. <laughs> be fair You'll to have say, to, she needs to be glamping. Yes, you'll have to um, yep. have a big, big tent. Correct. Pink flamingos at the front. Correct. Flashing lights. Yep. So the thought of me coming home with a new four-wheel drive one day would fill her with dread. And I also love the Murray River. That's one of your challenges. It, oh, that is a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> One that I'm unlikely to win, but I love it. Yeah, fair enough. Do you have a superpower outside of running TH Brown? Ooh, I have no superpowers at all. I have a real interest in philosophy and science. And you could be Mr. Philosophy. Yeah, yeah, I'd love that. I'd Mr. Love that. Science. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been more interested in ideas and concepts. I couldn't screw a, a screw into a piece of wood. It's so interesting that you yeah. like uh, making furniture. Well, my know. father, you know, he's Simon. You're a cack hander. You're no use to anybody. And um, you know, there aren't too many right-handed tools when you think about it. Even upholstery shears at the factory were all made for right-handed people. And I, I remember at the age of about 18 saying to one of the upholsterers, "God, these things are uncomfortable." He said, "No, they're not." I said, they are. You know, mm. He said, Simon, put it in your other hand. Mm. Oh, I had no idea scissors were that comfortable to use because mm. they're not made for the shape, no. you know, for the side on you. It sounds so. like your dad was pretty hard. Oh, he was. Do you reckon he was too hard? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was a war vet. You know, he, he saw men. You know, he, he was next to one of the American battle um, carriers that was in the first kamikaze attack. And he saw men running down the, the um, runway, dripping fat from napalm and, and fuel oil, jumping overboard to kill themselves. You know, he, he was in a rigid environment where discipline was absolutely 100% mandatory. So he continued, as a lot of 
war veterans were. Mm. You know, they, they just got inculcated with How else do you survive? And without it, order breaks down and things go wrong and you lose a war, which in those days was pretty, a pretty primal urge to not lose. So, no, he, he, he was tough. And he had six boys, you know, it wasn't as if we had a nice blended family where there was... You don't sound like you're resentful. Oh, look, I was for a while. Yeah, no, I, I definitely was for a while. I, you know, I basically left the state when I was 20, 21. I left home when I was 17, 18. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Mm. You know, mum was under a lot of pressure with six boys. Dad mm. is very much, you know, your man about town. He wasn't around much except on weekends when we were put to work in the garden rather than the factory and you know, he was merciless. 100 degree day, I don't give a damn. You're, you're mowing the lawns, you're marking the tennis court for my tennis party. Don't use any of the facilities in the house there for my friends. You know, and my, all our kids would walk past on their way down to the beach and we'd be there. We used to um, weed the tennis court with a knife and a fork. Oh my God. In our emu line, four of us just going. Every single piece had to be hand cut and collected until there wasn't a single week. Was he a frightening person? Frightening, Mm. yeah, in some ways. Look, he was very gregarious, he was very charismatic, he was very Mm. amusing, he he was a great raconteur, Mm. but he had a, you know, I I suppose a a background of having a very tough father who had survived from 12 or 14 on his Mm. own with a farm and... Mm. six or eight kids to look up. With your kids, have you had a reaction against that? Have you been more gentle and... Oh, yeah. Mm. Too gentle <laughs> would be my call. Do I think reckon? I've been walked over in my days. I look, I, from, from day dot, I, I decided that my children's relationship and the way I behave was not going to be anything like that which I grew up with. Yeah. And the times had changed. The times have changed, absolutely. They have. to. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, it was a tough world when I was a kid even, yeah. post-war and all of that. So, no, it's been very different. As my son said only last night, Dad, you are my favourite father. <laughs> well, that's a bonus. <laughs> I said, you're you my favourite. Yeah, you could trade you in, mate. Yeah, you're my, for- you my favourite fourth child. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, yeah. it's, been, it's been a wonderful journey. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. No. For anything, I've been very blessed and very lucky and... Yeah. I want to leave some of that blessing and luck behind me. Yeah, look, you're building on the legacy that you've been given too. Hmm. You know, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah, obviously. You know, yeah. Proud of my uncle, the surgeon. You know, he yeah. was, I think he did the first heart transplant in South Australia. You know, he was a very eminent surgeon okay. and uh, very famous in his day. So his family have gone down that sort of yeah. you know, academic medical world and they've all been extremely successful. His eldest son is now an orthopaedic surgeon here in Adelaide. You know, so there's two sort of sides to the family that coalesce occasionally. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah, yeah. When the apocalypse comes, <laughs> will you have any useful skills? Oh, that is that is an interesting question because it's possible we're in an apocalyptic time. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> My wife would say none. <laughs> Absolutely no. Put it this way, no practical skills. I I would be quite 
comfortable standing up on a soapbox somewhere and extorting and rallying the neighbours and the and the metaphorical troops to mm. the national good. Do that happily. Uh, when we first went to London on our honeymoon, my wife and I were walking through Hyde Park and I see this sign that says Speaker's Corner. And I'd always said to myself, if ever I find myself in Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, I'm going to get up and I'm going to speak. So I did. And my wife on our honeymoon threatened to leave me before we'd even got back to Australia. And I got up and did a talk about uh, nuclear physics and the impact of the <laughs> splitting of the atom and what's going to happen when we find gravity waves. Is that just an impromptu, uh, impromptu speech? It was, but it happened to be something I'm really yeah, interested yeah, in, so okay. I knew my way around it. Yeah. So I've got my wife's best friend and her and a, a 20 people standing around as I proceed to tell them all about the changes coming in nuclear physics and end up by saying, so the real benefit of all of these changes is going to be impacted on one item. What's that? Uh, hair dryers. <laughs> as it transpired, of course, Dyson came out with a hair dryer not too too much later that implied and used some of those technologies. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I, w I think I could extol the virtues of what we can do to work together in the apocalypse. You know, I can look down on my father down there and my grandfather down there and say, I'll be down there with you soon. <laughs> mm, maybe we all will. That's what happens when the apocalypse happens. Oh, yeah. Yeah, scary time. What's the best decision you ever made? To leave Adelaide when I was 20. Mm. You know, leave the family company, which was a horrifying process, as you can imagine. Mm, I totally can. Um, Dad was, you know, didn't talk to me much for a very long period there. I wasn't very popular. I'd, I'd joined the enemy, metaphorically, and I really didn't come home for many, many years. You know, I would visit, but, you know, at that stage, Dad and I didn't have the greatest relationship. Did you repair that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. No, Dad, Dad... Look, he was a funny, funny man. Like, he was enormously amusing. So um, he passed in 2011. No, by then we'd, we'd had a great relationship. Mum passed about five. Mum was the one I was always sorry for, having my father and six boys to deal with would have been hell on earth for mum and I think it had a big effect on her too, regrettably. And mm. um, she never really recovered, I don't think. So God rest her soul. Yeah. What's the hardest decision you ever made? <sighs> to leave Adelaide. Mm. It's often the case, isn't it? Yeah, that was uh, that was a make or break mm. sort of seminal moment in my life. Mm bifurcated from that point on and into a path that I knew not which it was going to lead the towards. The unknown, the big unknown out there. But I love that. You know, mm. I, I lived in Sydney on the smell of an oily rag. Never occurred to me that life was so risky for me. You know, I just took it in my took it in my stride and had some amazing experiences around the world. Mm. I was in Christchurch for the earthquake. I've been really? in a gun siege. What did you do? Did you stand under a doorway and make sure you had uh, your hands look, over your head? <laughs> if you knew me better, this would not surprise you. I was on the fifth floor of the main hotel in the city of Christchurch having a shower I was over there working for Motorola on a business trip and uh, from Sydney and I was shaving, washing my hair and all hell broke loose. I mean, if you've not been mm. in an earthquake, you don't want to be in an earthquake. Mm. It scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. But I sat there and I looked around and I thought, well, the hotel hasn't fallen down. 
I still got meetings, so I continued to shave and wash my hair. The, um, then I got out in the Claxons and they were telling us to evacuate. And I thought, well, we're still here. I'm not going to evacuate in a hurry. There will be a queue downstairs, whatever. You know, I'll just pack my bags, da-da-da. Next thing, the door opens and this, the manager's here saying, why aren't you leaving? I said, well, I haven't packed yet. He says, get out of here. It's going to collapse. And I went, oh, Jesus. So he helped me down. And as we were walking out to the stairwell, I tripped over. This is in the, the lift lobby. I thought, that's odd. And we both sort of looked around and there was about a two foot step where the base of the floor had broken by the lift wheel and I'd just run into this cliff. And then we decided not to use the lifts at that point. We went down the fire escape and the fire escape had moved. There was a gap from the seventh floor down to the basement that I could see the whole way down because the stairs had moved 18, 20 inches from the wall. And then I realised that we might really be imperiled. Time to run. But it wasn't the case, so I was, mm. I was safe and, you know, the company was less than impressed that I was even there to begin with because I hadn't read the email that said don't go to New Zealand. I went, oh, hadn't read that yet. It was in the list of things to do. I figured I'd do it in New Zealand when I got set up. So I've, I've been mm. through that and then a gun siege in Brisbane Mall a few years ago having a handgun pointed at me wasn't a lot of fun. That would be super scary. Oh, it was amazing. Uh, but again, you know, I, I was trying to take photos, but my hand was shaking too much on my Blackberry to get any film. But uh, I'll put it this way, my daughter wants to make a mod podcast about me called um, Accidentally Alive. Because <laughs> I've got ones, the stuff I've seen in my life has just been amazing. So oh, I'll look forward to that one. Yeah, that I've, had, great. I've had some near-death experiences that, yeah, I've yeah. survived through. One day it might not be... A lucky outcome. Mm, well, hey, if going. you're going to skate on thin ice, you might as well tap dance. <laughs> yeah, figure eights. Yeah, yeah people at least absolutely. applaud when you make it mm. to the surface again. If you do, that's <laughs> Bryce Courtney line. Uh, have you ever made a bad decision? Oh, about 95% of them. <laughs> I'm not. Mm. Uh, I'm not famous for my prescient skills about outcomes of things Maybe you I are, because you keep, you keep surviving. I, I, I keep surviving, but um, no, I've always been very adventurous and some of my decisions were just things I did on the spur of the moment. There was no decision made at all, just... Um, Let's do it anyway. It seemed like mm. a good idea at the time. But I've made a few bad decisions that, yeah, we all do in life and you learn from them if you can. Yeah. I've learnt from most of them, but not all of them, I suspect. Mm. After the fourth time you keep making that decision, I think that's one that you're probably not going to learn from. <laughs> no. Yeah. no. If you could go back and give advice to a young Simon, what would it be? Do you reckon you'd listen? Ooh. Focus. <laughs> focus. Uh, I was never very focused. I suspect it's just the innate in the way I think, so probably I can't change it anyway but be honest and have integrity is the, the key thing do something you know do it well and if you can't do it well don't do it to be honest but integrity was the the key one mm. that's that's the lesson i took from grandpa and my family background mm. you know if you're gonna if you're gonna be out in society at least try and help be one of the leaders and show a good example not a bad example yeah that legacy's coming through isn't it yeah mm. yeah 
It's been a great conversation. No, thank you. It's been a delight. Mm. It's been really fun. Thank it you. really has. How can people get in touch with you? Uh, thbrown.com.au, easier than a phone number. I've got a website with all of the products, quite a bit of history. If anyone has pieces of furniture that they think are TH Brown or know a TH Brown, but they want to know the story, you'd be surprised what catalogues I've got and what personal experiences I can share. So everybody gets a tailored response from me and I thoroughly enjoy that. I hope one day to put some of the or a lot of the items up on our website under a historical mm. page. And mm. in the future, I hope to open up some sort of South Australian furniture industry exhibition, a bit like the um, car thing up in the hills. You know, it would be nice. Not just T.H. Brown, Noblet and McRobb and a whole lot of local companies that all were famous in their day, most of whom sort of came out of apprenticeships or the trades at T.H. Brown. And mm. I'd love to celebrate a really vibrant part of Australian, South Australian history. Mm. So I'm always, my phone number is on the website. My email's on the website. Welcome to hear from anybody. Bloody awesome. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thank you, Simon. My pleasure. Thank you again. Mm-hmm.